I'm going to introduce Kel, who's going to be speaking the word for us this morning. So thanks, Dave. And by way of introduction, yeah, uh, my name's Kel. I think if I look around, I know many here. But if not, uh, first and foremost, I'm a child of the risen king. That's my primary introduction. In addition to that, I'm a husband to uh, Kirsten, father to Trent and Lindsay there, and um, have been worshiping together here with you for some time. Uh, one of the ways I serve is in the children's ministry and, um, and as an elder, and it's in that capacity I'm here this morning about judges. So we've been in the book of Judges for some time, and I think we've recognized for some time, and uh, we consistently point out the sin cycle that we see. And judges, the book of Judges is very, very evident about that. We see that kind of again and again and again, where the, the Israelites uh, you know, fall into sin and then cry out. They want some saving. They want some uh, redemption from this. And someone's risen up. And that you know, works for some time, and then they fall back into sin and things. So we're going we're gonna to see that again today. Um, but there's a couple things in today's passage in Judges 10, if you want to open there uh, while, I'm, while I'm setting this up. But um, there's a couple things today that struck me in the text, and I want to point those out. Um, because in, this, in, the, in the text today, there's not much more by way of plot or story or characters or things like that for us, for us to, to look at. But there's a couple, couple fingerprints, I'll call, say, fingerprints that then, uh, for me at least, and you know, what I'd like to share today, is just open up a whole world uh, about who we are and about who we're not. And, and more importantly, uh, who God is and who, Je- and who Jesus is. Um, so, oh wait, I've got this clicker. I've got it here. Dave's looking like, no, I swear. There we go. Um, so there's a lot of words up here. Uh, please open up the text to Judges 10. I'm going to read it because uh, can't, we can't go by a uh, sermon on, on the uh, Word of God without reading it. Um, but it's a little uh, tight up there on the screen. Um, but I just want to read it once through, and then we'll orient into these couple things that, um, you know, like I said, there's some fingerprints in here that I want to draw from. Okay? So just uh, follow along with me. I'm in Judges 10, and we're just going to plow through the whole chapter uh, right off the bat. <clears throat> After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. And how would you like that, right? Uh, there's a, there's a like, playground fight waiting to happen. Son of Dodo, <laughs> a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. He died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, a Gileadite, Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities, called Havoth Jair to, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried and came on. The people, okay, here we go, right? So sin cycle. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of Philistine, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook, forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands, hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. 
For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people cried out to the Lord, right? So here's part of our sin cycle again, right? The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us what seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped at Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they camped at Mizpah. And the people, and the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So that's our chapter. I think the sin cycle is pretty evident, pretty clear. You know, we've, we've been in this pattern for some time, uh, and, you know, and here we go again. But I'd like to point a couple things out. This is the first of the fingerprints I want to point out. Is if you look up in, uh, what is that, verse, whatever that is, 6, um, you see here that the, the litany, this, and there's seven here, and the, the, the number's important, but the litany of, of what they've turned themselves over to. And if you look at uh, Jewish tradition, and the, you know, the, I think we, when you, I haven't studied Hebrew myself, but I understand that the words are hard to get across. They're hard to, there's so much depth and so much meaning and there's, there's things that mean certain things, even though they're not written. And the, word, and the number seven has meaning uh, to the Israelites, to the Jews. It's the word of completeness. It's the number of completeness. It's the number of um, totalness and things. And I'm going to argue, and I'm going to say, that because there's seven, I don't think there's anything in Scripture that's a coincidence, because there's seven, that they are completely turned over to these things. This number seven means something. They've, they're, after, seven, after seven things that aren't the creator, their God, and because seven is the number of completeness, the number of fullness, is I'm, gonna, I'm going to use that as a fingerprint and say they are completely turned over. They're so turned over that God even says, I will no longer save you. And there's a word for this. There's a word for being completely turned over. There's a word for being completely... Like, Something that's so much, so much overwhelmingly you know, uh, overtaken. And when you put that word with um, you know, being turned over to the world, being turned over to things that draw our flesh, right, our sinful flesh, it's called being depraved or, or depravity. Now, depravity is a heavy, heavy word. 
when you think, you put that word next to sin, sin feels like something that you do, right? Sin feels like something, oh yeah, I, I, I did something bad, I sinned, right? But it's almost separated from you, right? It's something that, okay, yeah, I did that, that was bad, that was sin, that was against the will of God, that is against what, what I'm you know, taught in scripture, and I sinned, and it's an action. Where depravity is something much more intertwined much more ingrained in who we are. Um, it's, it's, it's not sin that makes you sinful. It's your sinfulness that makes you sin. And until you grasp that, that I am sinful, I am depraved, I am totally turned over to the things that, that I don't want to be, <laughs> I know I shouldn't, Right? But I keep going back. I keep going back. And it's and 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 you have to it's the, the scripture is is replete with telling us that in our flesh, this is who we are. There's no getting away from it. And and you can't just like just like sin can be something where you say, okay, well, that, that's something I did. It's not me, it's something I did. It's an action. It's something, you know, there was, there's something that I did that was sinful. No, you are sinful. And, and to, kinda, to kind of articulate and kind of get across that how, how much this is part of us, I, I tried to come up with some examples, right? So you take out your dollar bill or something like that, and in the dollar bill there's those anti-counterfeit little threads, right, of, of fabric and stuff. And things, and it's it's part of the bill. It's like it's part of what the bill is. Once you sep- you can't you can't separate that, and say you still have a bill. And that's kind of a little cute examples. But some other examples are it's trying trying to take your depravity out of who you are is trying to take wetness out of water. You just can't. It's 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 in you. It's in me. It's who we are. It's not, you don't separate from it. It's like taking darkness out of night. Or maybe a little more positive example, it's like taking sound out of music. You just, they're, they're so, so connected, so intertwined, and until you understand that is who you are, then the rest of this doesn't make sense. And it's so much a part of you that you, you cannot, as much as you want to, as much as every day, how often have you said, how often have you said, I'm never going to do this again, right? I've done this terrible thing and I'm never going to, or how about this one? You, you bargain with God. You say, okay, you do this for me and then I'll never do this again. Right? How many times did you do that yesterday? Do it today? I don't know how many times, right? But don't you find yourself here? Don't you find yourself saying, committing, committing to your creator that I will never do this again? And you can count it on one hand how many days it is until there you are doing it again. This is why you cannot look away from things that are depraved, right? Um, how about rubbernecking, right? This is an easy one, <laughs> right? You're driving down the freeway. You get all mad because you're late because of the backup, and you want to see what happened. 
right? You're drawn to you're drawn to things that that are not that are not good. They're not glorifying things. That's an easy one. This is why when you know when you're watching that TV show and these things come on that you know should not be in your home, but you keep watching. This is why when you have when there's music on and it's it's defaming Christ. It's pleading and it's glorifying the world that you still keep it on. This is why when you try to do good, you still feel empty. This is why when you truly, you, you really can't forgive someone. You say the words, but you know in your heart that it hasn't happened. This is why joy and peace in and of, it, we can't achieve that by our own devices. You can't get there because I can't get there because I am depraved. See how heavy that is? That's different. It's, it's, got, a, it's got a different depth than sin. At least it does for me. And this defines, it defines the sin cycle. So this chap, he's all blinged out, isn't he? <laughs> um, so this is, this is a little picture of Martin Luther. Martin Luther got it. Martin Luther understood. These, he wrote, this is the, this, these are partial lyrics uh, from uh, the first hymn that he wrote. And, well, let, let me read this, right? This is, this is how much he knew this was gripping him and defining him and how he can't get out of it on his own. Fast bound in Satan's chains I lay. Death brooded darkly over me. Sin was my torment day and night. In sin my mother bore me. Yea, deep and deeper still I fell. Life had become a living hell. So firmly sin, so firmly depravity possessed me. My own good works availed, availed me not. No merit they attaining. And the, the words there basically mean, you know, I can't, my works don't mean anything. They don't get me out of this. Whatever I try and whatever I do, they don't get me out of this. Free will against God's judgment fought, dead to all good. Dead to all good is what, that's all that remains. My fears increased in sheer despair, left naught but death to be my snare. The pangs of hell. I suffered. If we go back to the Israelites, again, a lot of words up there, but if you look at verse 13, I think it is in the text, right? When the Israelites cry out, right, and they say, do whatever seems good to us, only please deliver us this day. What they're after is something for them. What they're after is get me out of my situation, right? But I'm going to argue, well, actually, I'll, I'll, come, I'll come to that, right? But, but ev- they're, th- what they're focused on is me. What they're focused on is just get me out of this bad situation. And then, and then everything will be okay, right? And hang on to that um, because I want to come back to that. But now, when you grasp and you understand and you come to grips 
with depravity, then, and, and, and let me say, there's, there's two ways to look at this. On the left side, and I think this is one of the things I put in your little question, so if you're, like, if you're the people that like to follow along and, you know, uh, on the paper, uh, this is, I think this is in there, right? So on the left side, people are so depraved and rebellious that they are unable to trust God. Your depravity has so much grip on you, it is so intertwined in you, you cannot get away from it, it is so deep that you cannot trust God. That they are unable to trust God without his special work of grace to change their hearts so that all resistance is overcome and they willingly and gladly believe. So there's one view of depravity that you can't get out of it. You can't get out of it on your own. There's no possibility that's where you are. There's another view of depravity that says, yeah, people are depraved and corrupt, but as an individual... I can, I can bring about, I can provide the decisive impulse to trust God. That yes, I am depraved, but I still have the capacity to trust God. Able to provide the decisive impulse to trust God with the general divine assistance that he gives to all people by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Do you see the difference there? In one hand on the left side, you can't do anything about it. On the other hand, you can do something about it. And, and at, the, at the point, like, you can get yourself out of it by providing that impulse to, to trust God. The, po- the point to make here is there's no argument about depravity. There's no argument about you are depraved, I am depraved, we as in our flesh are depraved. It's just then what do you do? What happens with it after that? Now, there might be some people in here that are saying, okay, maybe I can get out of it. Maybe I can't on my own. Maybe I can provide that decisive impulse. Maybe it's something that happens to me that that, that that I get lifted out of that depravity. But there might be some people in here that are saying, my sin is too great. I've done so, my, my depravity has come out so much in my actions that I am unsavable. And to that, to that, I would say, your view of the Lord is way too small. But, 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 Kel, I've done this. There is nothing beyond his reach. But, Kel, there is nothing that is beyond his grasp. And, and how dare we make ourselves something larger than God? So, yes, your sin is great. Yes, it is deep. Yes, it is in you. But it is not beyond the grasp of God. So there might be some of you who are sitting in here saying, yeah, that, that, you might be saying that, Cal, and okay, depravity, but that's not me. I'm good. What I would say, Ethan is laughing. He's like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And, and there was one characteristic, one characteristic that got this angel named Lucifer thrown out of the presence of God, and it was pride. And I would argue and I would say that not acknowledging depravity, not acknowledging that it's in you, not acknowledging that you can't get out of it is, a, is, is pride overtaking you. And what it does is pridefulness, right, makes us very, very difficult to live with, human to human, right? It, it, it gives us edges. It makes us hard. It ruins our affections. Whereas once you acknowledge your depravity, not in a depressed way, not in a way that's, you know, woe is me and things like that, but you just understand, yeah, that's who I am. That will, that will build up your humility in a good way. It'll build up your humility. It'll make you someone who is, others want to relate to and restores your affections. My intention here is to get across how deep this depravity is and how much of an, a hopeless situation I'm in. How much of a hopeless situation you're in. And until you understand the gravity and scope of depravity, you cannot understand the gravity and scope of salvation. Do the words show up there? Let me, I don't know if they're hard to read here on the, on the right there, but let me, let me read them because I think they're, they capture it, right? If the guilt of sin, if the guilt of depravity is so great that nothing can satisfy it but the blood of Jesus... And the filth of depravity, the filth of sin is so great that nothing can fetch out the stain of it but the blood of Jesus. Then how great, how heinous, how depraved, how sinful must the evil of sin be? See, you can't do anything about it. It's so great, it's so deep, it's so big that you can't do anything about it. That is being completely turned over. And we can't just point to the Israelites and say, yeah, that's, that was them. That's not me. The point of the text is, no, that's you. That's me. I, we have to identify with this. Okay, we go a little further in the text and things get a little more hopeful. right? Things get a little more hopeful. Uh, verse 15 there, right? There's repentance. They say we have sinned. There is a turning away, turning away. They got rid of their foreign gods. And then we also see juxtaposed with this is grace. And the, the, the text that I used here, the translation I used here says, and he could, he being God, he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Now, just like there's views of depravity, right? I, I spoke about those views of depravity. There's also views of grace. On the left side, I think this is one of your paper things, if you like to follow along with those, right? Um, so one view of grace is grace is irresistible. 
Irresistible grace is God's work in us by which he overcomes our resistance. Remember what was on the left side of the, yeah, the left side of the screen here before is that we can't overcome it. We can't trust God. Okay, so one view of grace is he overcomes our resistance to, God, to him and unfailingly brings about the act of faith, saving faith. And through that faith, infallibly supplies everything we need to live joyfully with God forever. Okay, so he does a work in you to overcome your resistance. You are, on, on this side of things, you are unable to do it. You are so depraved, I am so depraved that there's nothing I can do on my own to overcome my own resistance to God, my own resistance to Jesus' love for me. There's nothing I can do to overcome that, and he does it for me. So can I go back on this thing? Hey, yeah, okay. Okay, so the question then is which came first, right? The other view of grace is, no, it's not irresistible, but prevenient. That means it's available to everyone. And it precedes and makes possible saving faith, but we provide the act of will that brings about saving faith through which God supplies everything we need to live joyfully with him forever. You see the difference? On the left side, he does a work in you. On the other side, it's available to everyone, and I choose to accept it. So I go back here. My question is, okay, of these two sentences in the text, which came first? Again, the point here is that there's no argument about grace. Grace is all over this thing. It's just what's your view of it. Okay? Now, there's a thing, there's a thing called proof texts. Proof text is something like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find my position. I'm going to find my understanding based on what I see in Scripture. And I'm going to point to these verses. I'm going to point to these things that are written in the Word. And that is what is behind my understanding. That's what's be, behind my understanding of depravity. That's what's behind my understanding of grace. And there's a few other you know, deep you know, points here that um, have different views. And on the left, that is a proof text of, if I go back, of what's on the left there, right? Irresistible grace. He overcomes our resistance, right? So all that the Father gives me will come to me. This is Jesus speaking. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The point there is that the Father has given some but the tough thing is, and not others. So if I go back, right, that if I go back and on the left side, he overcomes our resistance to grace. This says, yeah, and there's some that he, he accomplishes that work in them to overcome their resistance, and there's some that he doesn't. And you can read the rest of that. On the right side is an example proof text I go back to prevenient grace. It says, I, when I, when I am lifted up from, from the earth, will draw all people to myself, all-encompassing, all-inclusive, and it's up to the individual to say, yes, I, I accept that. Now, some of you are going to be sitting there saying, okay, well, this all contradicts, and this is all confusing, and you can't have both, and perhaps we're not supposed to. 
See, in, in Ecclesiastes, a wisdom book, right, there's plenty of examples, and he tells us, you're not going to get it, right? You're not going to get it. No one can comprehend. No one can discover its meaning. They re- cannot really comprehend it. No one can fathom what God has done. Whatever exists is far off and, must, and, and most profound. Who can discover it? So when I've got these two views of depravity, which one is right? Yes. <laughs> right? When I've got these two views of, of grace, which one is right? Yes. And the only way I've been able to get to a point where I can understand that yes, that yes, both are, but they seem like they can contradict, and, but, but at the same time, they coexist in perfect harmony, are maybe the four most difficult words in Scripture to get past. That it's not up to us necessarily to understand everything. Doesn't that make God small? If you can understand everything about God, doesn't that make him small? And these could be the four most, these could be the four, for me they are, the four most difficult words in scripture. He is God, I am not. That one I get. But in the beginning, God and everything flows from that. That's, that takes me some time. And I'm not sure I totally, I'm not sure I totally have it. Actually, I, I'm sure I don't. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right? But when, when, you, when you soak in this, when you, when you meditate in this, when you, when you start to come to grips with this, you get to a point of maturity in your understanding, in your faith, in your belief, right, that it's not about you. And there's plenty in Scripture that tells us what it's about, right? For, and this is all, this is, there's no human speaking here, right? It is for my name's sake. It is for the sake of my praise. It is for my own sake, my own sake, my glory, to the praise of his glorious name, of his glorious grace. Everyone who's called by his name, give glory to the, your Father who is in heaven. Glorify God. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you for my sake. Do you get it? Do you get it? It's not about you. If you're thinking it's about you, then that's pride coming over your state of depravity. Now, the one that I really don't get, that when I say, yeah, it's not about you, and these contradictions that exist and that we're not meant necessarily to understand it. They contradict, but they're entirely true. Is it's not about you. You get to this point of maturity that you understand that, and then you figure out that it's entirely about you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners came into the world to save the depraved, came into, and don't point to somebody else 
right? Own your depravity. Wear it well, right? Right? Wear it. Put your name in this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save Kel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save Gria, right? Read these. Put your name in it. And then you'll understand the flip side of it's not, about, it's, it's not at all about you. And then you turn the coin and you find out that it's entirely about you. I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Look around. This is who it's talking about, right? Pick up the mirror. That's who that's talking about, right? This goes on and on and on. See, it's entirely about you, but don't distance yourself from Scripture. Don't distance yourself from the Word of God, right? He is, it is, Jesus is entirely about you. He's about repairing your broken heart. He's about entirely about filling your emptiness. Do you, do you have those? I've got them, Right? He is entirely about redeeming your troubled marriage. He is entirely about enriching, enriching the poor. He is entirely about strengthening the weak. He is entirely about caring for the widow. Entirely about being a father to the fatherless. Entirely about seeing you through your struggle with disease. He is entirely about cleansing, cle- closing the rift with your children. He is entirely about reuniting you with the father that you don't talk to anymore. He is entirely about overcoming your incapacity to turn away from sin. He is entirely about eliminating the coveting that you have turned into idolatry. He is entirely about curing and saving us from our sin cycle. Does this now feel like verse 16, right? He could bear Israel's misery no longer, right? So don't distance yourself from Scripture, right? He could bear Israel's misery no longer. He can bear my misery no longer. It is entirely about me, and I am entirely about his glory. You can't stop here or your pride will elevate you to points that you don't want to go <laughs> that are very, very dangerous, right? So don't stop it here. Understand your place in the story. I am entirely about his, about his glory. And this is why I said way back when, when the Israelites said, please save us from this, right? Do what you will with us, but please save us from this. That stops short, right? It stops short. It's, no, save us from this. Yes, you are a beneficiary of being saved from it, but do this for your glory. Save me from my depravity. Yes, so that I will be out of my depravity, but save me for your glory, it's about my, his namesake. It's about glorifying him. Don't fall short. Don't fall short like the Israelites did. 
okay, so now what? Yo, that's fine. That's good. You've made me feel really bad about my depravity. You've told me that I may or may not get out of it by something I do, 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 that I do or not. There's some in the room, right, who haven't come to grips with who God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are. Maybe this is a start. Maybe this is a start. And the start is what I said, is those four words, right? Those four most difficult words, in the beginning, God. And then right after that, recognize the state that you're in. Recognize the state that I'm in, in, this, in my depravity. Maybe this is a start. But if you don't get those right, the rest of it's not going to make sense. So wrestle with that. Ask about that. That is what these, these, these books are about in the, in the beginning. And I know, I know that there are those here who acknowledge, proclaim Jesus as your Savior. And maybe this stir, stirs up you know, a warm affection, a warm affection about how deep the scope of depravity, but then therefore the depth and scope of your salvation. We're going to have communion now. You guys can go ahead and start the... Yeah. We're going to have communion now. Many times we read the text uh, of what Jesus said uh, during... When he was passing, when he was conducting and and uh, carrying out that that final uh, Passover celebration of while while he was on earth, um, and instead of reading it, what I wanted to do is just point out point out something else. So that that happened in the week before he was crucified, and that happened on a day called Monday Thursday. And we tend to gravitate on Monday, Thursday to that Passover celebration. We tend to gravitate to those words that he said, which are so profound. But what, when we gravitate to that, on that same day something else happens that sometimes we tend to, you guys can go ahead and, um, it's, we tend to gravitate away from something else that happened on Monday, Thursday. Another thing that happened on Monday, Thursday, is in his last days, and you know, he didn't try to cram in another parable, right? He didn't try to cram in another teaching, another example, or something like that. Well, he actually, I, well, maybe it wasn't a cram in, but there was one example um, that he carried out on Monday, Thursday. And Perhaps it was this an example for us that then puts this in perspective of, yes, it's entirely about me and I am entirely about glorifying God. And how do we carry that out? What do we do with that? What does that look like in my life? And perhaps that was the example that he gave us on the, on the same day he gave us communion. And on that same day he gave the, the disciples that final, that final Passover meal, um, he also wash their feet. 
And maybe, maybe as the son of God, as someone who could get himself out of his depravity, there's no question about how, about in, in his, he was not subject to depravity. He was not subject to sin. He could do anything to get himself out of any situation. He could get himself off the cross. He could do any, any of that. But instead of going down that route of saying how great I am and putting on display all that I can do, which is all function of pride if we start doing that ourselves, what he did on that Monday, Thursday, is he said, he washed feet and said, no, it's about you. So with that, let's recognize who we are as we take the communion. Let's recognize who we are. Let's wear that well, right? There's no reason to shy away from depravity. Because you shy away from it and you're going to pretend it's not there. Go ahead, own that, but don't stay there. Don't stay there and recognize that this whole thing is, yes, it's about you, but don't stay there, right? This whole thing about your depravity being overcome is entirely about glorifying his name.